Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless his word to us tonight. Father, we pray your blessing upon the ministry of the word, and we pray that as you feed us from your word, that you'd also allow us to feed upon Christ by faith that when we come to the table together. We pray that you would receive glory for it all, and that our Savior would be honored and glorified. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. How do you feel when someone maligns your character? How do you feel when someone smears your reputation? Now, there are a number of us uh, who are in the practice of uh, responding to a question like, uh, how are you doing, or how's your day going? Uh, Many of us are in the habit of saying, uh, better than I deserve. And you understand the statement, right? Because uh, before God, we recognize that we have no merit, we don't deserve anything good, and so uh, even the least bit of good we may be experiencing, and, and in fact, any good that we do experience in this life is certainly better than what we deserve in and, our, in and of ourselves. But on the human level, because better than I deserve is sort of a, a Godward statement. It's, it's with the perspective of, of who we are before God and in our, ourselves. But on the horizontal level, in our human relations, as members of society, we can be above reproach. And in fact, we're, we ought to be. It's possible for us on that horizontal level of human relations to be an upstanding citizen, or even what society at large would consider to be a good person. Again, we know spiritually there's, there's no one good, not one. Uh, but on that human level, we can be good people. We can be good citizens. And in fact, we ought to be. I mean, if a, if a Christian can't be identified in terms such as upstanding citizen or, or uh, someone who's above reproach, then there's another problem. But thinking of it in those terms, as people, men and women, and even children who are trying to maintain a clear conscience, trying to live upright and godly lives in this present evil age, how does it feel to be wrongly accused? Of course, you would probably feel a sense of grief, wouldn't you? Don't you? You'd even have a sense of anger. There's a certain righteous indignation that we feel when we know that we've not done wrong, but we're accused of wrong that we didn't do. Well, let me ask you this. Would it be fair for God to be grieved or angry or indignant 
if his creatures maligned his character? Of course it would. Of course it is, because his creatures do that, and it does make God angry. When creatures that he made from the dust malign his character, smear his reputation, and that's precisely what's happening in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. People, creatures, are smearing God's reputation. The book of Malachi, as we're starting to see, is made up of a series of what commentators like to call disputations, complaints of various sorts that God brings to his people through the prophet Malachi. And to each of these disputations that God makes to his people, the Jews respond with these defensive questions. They're not the kinds of questions where they're saying, oh, Lord, you're offended. Please tell us what we've done and we'll make it right. No, these responses that they make, these questions that they ask in response to the disputations are are basically saying, what? What did we do? Just like Adam said when God confronted him about his sin, you know, the woman, you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate. Just like Cain said when God confronted him about when he killed his brother Abel. Pastor Mark mentioned it this morning. Where's your brother? Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's the spirit of the answers that the people give to God and his prophet over and over in Malachi. And this fourth disputation, God says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. That's similar to protests we see elsewhere. If you'll just turn real quickly with me to Isaiah chapter 1 to see that this sort of um, response to God is not unusual and to see that that God being wearied by his people is is not something peculiar to Malachi. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. And you'll see in verse 14, God saying, Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Why? Because they were bringing these these offerings, which God himself had commanded that they bring, and given them directions in how to bring them. But at the same time, they were sinning and living in unrepentant sin, and and it was hypocrisy, and God had had it up to here. With them. You see the same thing in Isaiah 7, verse 13. Since we're in Isaiah, just turn there a couple pages over, Isaiah 7, verse 13. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So this, this idea of God. In a, in a sense, and we'll, we'll talk about what it means for God to be weary uh, in just a few minutes here, but uh, uh, God has said similar things through other prophets. Isaiah prophesied uh, centuries before uh, Malachi. And the response of the people when God says, you've wearied me with your words, is, 
How have we wearied him? And we find the people putting God on trial, maligning his character, questioning his justice. And that's why I titled the sermon, God in the Dock. Now, living here in the low country, when you hear the word dock, you might think of a place where you tie up a boat. But dock, in this sense, I'm borrowing the title of a, of a collection of essays by C.S. Lewis titled God in the Dock. And he's using dock in the, in the sense that the British tend to use the word dock. And that's the word that they have for the place where someone who's on trial, they sit in this box and they're interrogated by lawyers or by the judge. And that's the dock. And what C.S. Lewis was saying by his essays, uh, the collection of which was titled God in the Dock, is man presumes to switch places with God. God is the judge of all the universe. Man is subject to the judgment of God, but what man does is he wants to switch places and say, no, God, I'm going to be the judge, and you sit in the dock, and I will pass judgment on you. And that's what is at work here in Malachi 2.17. We see here that fallen man presumes to put God on trial maligns his character and questions his justice. That's really the, the essence of this verse. Fallen man presumes to put God on trial, maligns his character, and questions his justice. The first thing we see here is that man distorts God's view of sin. And in doing so, he's maligning the character of God. Man distorts God's view of sin. Uh, these trying dishonoring words that God recounts back to his people is that they were saying, this is what was making God weary, they were saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. And whether the people actually said that, whether that was a popular saying in the culture and in in their society at that time, or whether that was just the spirit or the attitude of the people, we don't really know. But that's where they're coming from. They're saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. What do they really mean by that? What's the spirit of that claim? It's one of two things. I guess there's two ways we could understand it. It's either they're saying God doesn't disapprove of sin. In other words, they're, they're claiming that that, you know, yeah, we know God's commandments say this, this, and this, but it's not a big deal, and he's not really too upset with sin. It's all right, go on. I'm okay, you're okay. They're either saying that, or they're claiming that God is just giving evildoers a pass, so he must be okay with them. They must be good in his sight, those who do evil. If you think in terms of our legal system, we see a lot of that kind of thing going on in our own country, don't we? We see uh, people getting away with lawlessness. We see, uh, as lawlessness abounds, uh, certain cities even in our country are just deciding, well, we we can't change the laws exactly, but we're just not going to prosecute certain crimes anymore. It's just too much trouble. And the Jews in Malachi's day were saying, that's kind of how God is acting People are doing wrong things and are getting away with it. And that seems to be the complaint. So it's one of those two things. And they're really kind of related. And uh, I guess ultimately they're saying the same thing. So are they advocating for lawlessness? Are they kind of celebrating that, hey, you know, if you do evil, that's okay. God loves you. Or are they complaining that God isn't punishing sin? 
either way, they're distorting God's view of sin. Scripture's very clear about how God feels about sin. But to say things like this is to distort the way God looks at sin, how he feels about it. And when we distort God's view of sin, we malign his character. Whether we're doing it by way of trying to pursue personal license, lawlessness, and antinomianism, or whether we're protesting against his divine providence and complaining that he's not doing justice the way he ought to. In any case, we're maligning God's character. And people say the same things in our day, don't they? Exact same things. Sometimes they say both of those sorts of things at the same time. Man in our day says God doesn't disapprove of man's sin. We live in a society where we're told that all, all manner of perversion is, is A-OK. Sex outside of marriage is fine. Same-sex unions are fine. God approves of the choice to uh, abort a child. In fact, it's our right. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. But at the same time, you've got people saying, hey, I don't know whether there's a God or not, but if there is a God, why does he allow X, Y, and Z? I would never serve a God who would allow this to go on in a society. Where is God's justice? So man distorts God's view of sin. And when he does, it maligns the very character of God. It dishonors him. So let me just sum up with a couple of quick points of application from this point in the sermon before we go on. First of all, to say that God approves of sin is slander against the Lord of the universe. To say that anything God says in his word is sin is actually fine, permissible, even acceptable to God, is slander. And it's not just slander against a fellow human being, it's slander against our very Creator and Lord. And secondly, to say that God approves of sin is self-deception. People will go around plugging their ears to the Word of God, claiming not to hear, claiming not to know, and saying that sin is okay, God approves, it's all right. But that's self-deception. And people say those things because they want to go on in their sin. They try to quell and, and hold down the testimony of their own conscience. But it won't work. It's like projecting our ethic onto God our perverted, wicked, fallen ethic, and then attributing that, attributing that to the Lord God. And it reminds me of, of what I think is one of the most stinging rebukes that God gives against sinners in all of Scripture. And he gives many, you know that. But I think one of the most biting rebukes is Psalm 50, verse 21, where God says, you thought that I was altogether like yourself. 
We're pretty comfortable with who we are. We know what we want. And so we try to pretend that God's just like us. Man distorts God's view of sin. Secondly, man is cynical without God's justice. So the people wearied God by making that first statement, and then he says, or they weary me by asking, where is the God of justice? Now this question, where is God, where is God, is one of mankind's most persistent questions. It occurs many times in Scripture. For instance, uh, you see it in, in some of the Psalms. It occurs twice in Psalm 42. But I want you to see who's asking the question there. Turn with me to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, verse 3. The psalmist says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Right? And then later on in that same psalm, verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? So you see the people there asking, Where is God? Are, are taunting the psalmist. They're mocking him and saying, hey, if, if, there's, if there is a God, if your God is really a God, and if he really loves you, why are you going through this? Why doesn't he help you? Why doesn't he give you relief? Why doesn't he stand up for you? Where is your God? So our enemies taunt God by asking, where is he? The, the nations taunt the people of God by asking that question. Psalm 79, verse 10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? See, this is the psalmist pleading with God to act, pleading with God to come to his help, because if God doesn't act, and if there's not some tangible act on God's part in behalf of his people, then the nations are going to say, where is their God? And so the psalmist here is, is pleading, yes, for his own help, for the help of, of his people, and, and for relief, but also for the vindication of God himself. And then, of course, we're in Malachi 2.17, but look at Joel 2.17. Turn to the prophecy of Joel. Joel 2.17, Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? So this, where is God? Where is your God? Why doesn't he help you? It's very um, normal for God's enemies to say such things, right? We expect God's enemies to be cynical about him. But as we go back to Malachi and we hear that question, where is the God of justice? That's not being asked by hateful pagan nations. Malachi is prophesying to cynical Israelites. 
who are putting God in the dock. Where is the God of justice? Now, the Bible contains numerous examples of the godly calling out to God and asking him questions that, uh, you know, at, at first blush might sound like they're spoken out of unbelief. But, you know, one of the beauties of, of the book of Psalms is they give us the whole range of the experience of the life of faith. And sometimes in the life of faith, sometimes in your Christian walk, you wonder, where is God? You wonder if he's hearing your prayers. You wonder when he's going to help you. How long it might be. And so you hear that phrase in the Psalms a dozen times or more. How long, O Lord? Because the righteous are calling out to him and they're waiting and they're not seeing an answer yet. You've got examples of the godly growing weary and you've experienced it too, haven't you? growing weary, praying to God about something or other, some matter, some concern, some need. When it seems as if God doesn't hear, when you're tempted to wonder if God sees. So what's the difference between that and the nations taunting the people of God, saying, where's your God? Well, I would say that there is a world of difference between bringing a complaint to God and making a complaint about God. If you want to see examples of people bringing complaints to God, read the book of Job. If you want to see examples of people bringing complaints to God, read the Psalms. But that's a world apart from making a complaint about God. If you want to see examples of complaints about God, read the book of Exodus. Read the history of the people of Israel all the time they were going through the wilderness. Read the book of Numbers and see how many times they grumbled against him. You see the difference. You see the psalmists bringing complaints to God. You see the, the Israelites in the wilderness making complaints about God, and they're two entirely different things. They're as different as night and day. And complaining about God wearies him, as we see in this text. Man is cynical about God's justice. But then finally, this passage is a reminder that God's patience with man eventually comes to an end. That's the point of the, the opening of this verse. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Well, what does that mean? If you really think about that, you have wearied the Lord, how does that work? Can that be? Because we could turn to Isaiah chapter 40 and read verse 28, where it says that the Lord doesn't get tired. He's not weary. Young men grow weary, they grow faint, uh, but the Lord doesn't grow weary. He's not tired. And in addition to that, he's omnipotent and he's infinite. And that might seem like redundancy almost, but when we say God is omnipotent, we mean he's all-powerful. And when we say he's infinite, we mean his omnipotence uh, never changes. 
And it's, he's at full power all the time. It's not as if when God does some mighty work, he has to pause and recharge to get back to his omnipotence. He doesn't grow weary. So how can a God who doesn't get tired say that he's weary? Well, the answer to that is, Scripture, when it talks to us about God, or when God speaks about himself in Scripture, uses a, a device. Hold on now, it's, it's, it's a $50 word. It's six syllables, okay? God uses anthropomorphisms. Anthropos is man, morphisms uh, having to do with form. And so the word anthropomorphism means that God is being spoken of or is even speaking of himself in human terms. So, for instance, you know that God doesn't have a body. He's spirit. But he frequently speaks in Scripture about stretching forth his hand. He doesn't literally have a hand, but he's saying, I'm about to do something. I'm reaching out. I'm going to act. He speaks of his righteous uh, right arm, his, his, uh, which, which is a reference to his power. He says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. He doesn't have eyes, but he talks about his eye. I will incline my ear to your prayer. It means he'll hear. He doesn't literally have an ear. So God speaks of himself in those terms so that we can understand. And, and really, uh, that's about the only way we can know or understand him when he condescends to speak of himself in terms that we can relate to. It's an anthropomorphism. And a really great example of an anthropomorphism that might answer some questions that you have sometimes and that relates directly to God becoming weary is the idea of God repenting or changing his mind. Because if we take the whole of Scripture and consider everything that it says about who God is and everything that it says about his providence and his decree, we know theologically that God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't repent. And yet there are places in Scripture where it speaks of of God changing his mind in a sense. Jonah went and preached to the people of Nineveh. And it says that they repented, and when God saw it, it says he didn't do the evil that he had said he was going to do to them. So again, anthropomorphically, it appears that God planned to do one thing, then he changed his mind in response to what the people of Nineveh did. Or God says to Samuel, it repents me, or I repent that I've made Saul king. That's an anthropomorphism too. Why? Because God dwells outside of time. We can't even comprehend that, but he's not bound by time. He dwells outside of time, but he relates to us in time. He knows the end from the beginning. But we experience his providence in time, in the parameters of time and in that context. And in the context of the time in which we live and move and have our being, God won't bear with sin and rebellion forever. His justice will come. And in fact, next week when we get into chapter 3, that's where he begins to describe very assuredly how his justice is going to come. 
God's patience with man eventually comes to an end. He bears with us. But he won't bear with us forever. And so that's a point of application at the, beginning of, at the end of this point. As we, be, as we sort of start to conclude here, be sure of this. Be absolutely certain of this. God's judgment will eventually come. And we like to convince ourselves that it won't. We like to convince ourselves that God is, is like an earthly human parent who makes threats and promises certain uh, consequences but doesn't follow through on them. Anyone here who's a parent knows that scenario. We like to think that God is like that coach who, who threatens his team with some tough punishment, but then he forgets or he just decides not to do it, not to make them run laps after practice or something like that when he said he was going to. And we experience those things, and we begin to think, well, God's like that too. But God's justice is always perfect. God's justice never fails. And we can't put him in the dock. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. See, while you live, there's hope. But when death comes, that's the end. And if you haven't by that time bowed the knee to Christ, repented of your sins, put your faith in him, it's going to be too late. There will be no more patience from God for you. And I'm certain that there are millions of Americans, millions of Americans who think, if there is a God, then on the judgment day, he'll be lenient with me. He'll be lenient with me. I've heard about this God. He's love. He loves everybody. He's, he's forgiving. I think he's just going to let things slide. Or my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. He'll see the good in me. And in the words of that highly blasphemous country song, people think God will say, Come on in, you did the best that you could do. And your best is good enough for me. No. It's not. It's not good enough. It's not anywhere close. God says he will by no means clear the guilty. So be sure that God's judgment will eventually come. Another application. It's an application of caution. Okay? The other one was too, I suppose. But God is patient towards sinners. <clears throat> he allows them time to repent. And you know, in most cases, he allows a lot of time to repent. Lifetimes. People who live into their 50s, 60s, 70s, even their 80s, who never repented, and God's still waiting. The free offer, the genuine, sincere offer of the gospel is still extended. After decades of rebellion against God, decades of living for oneself and, and spurning the grace of God. But time runs out. Time runs out for all of us, each and every one of us. And then it'll be too late to repent. Then it'll be too late to plead for mercy and to hope for the grace of God.
But finally, a word to you who are faithful, a word to you who are trusting in Christ, who love him, seeking to serve him by the grace of the Holy Spirit. The message to you is wait for the Lord. Wait for him. He will act. He will vindicate his loved ones, and he will judge his enemies. The message is the same for you as it was to those that John saw in Revelation chapter 6. The souls under the altar, as he sees it, who had been slain for their testimony. He says the righteous, uh, in in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe, told to rest a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Or in the words of one of my favorite hymns, the righteous judge of all the world will make his perfect justice known. We see previews of it from time to time, previews that are sort of down payments on the justice of God, down payments on his judgment of the wicked. But in the last day, everything will be made right. You might ask, Sometimes we're tempted to ask, aren't we? What's he waiting for? Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. What is he waiting for? He waits to be gracious. He waits to show mercy. Just as many of you have received mercy, there are still others whom our gracious God is going to save, and he's still about that process of doing that. He's still got his elect to bring in And he's not willing for any of his elect to perish. And he will bring them all to repentance. So as now we uh, get ready to come to the Lord's Supper, let's go back to our text one last time, Malachi 2.17, and let's revisit it in view of the cross. The people in Malachi's day were saying, everyone who does evil is good in the eyes of the Lord, and He's pleased with them. He delights in them. You know, the only one God ever really truly delighted in and whose works and whose walk genuinely pleased the Lord was Jesus Christ. He's the only one that it could truly be said that in and of himself he was good in the sight of the Lord and God delights in him. God even said he delights in him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased That was the testimony of God about Jesus. But you might not get the impression that Jesus was good in the eyes of God or that God delighted in him if you were to look upon him while he hung on that cross. The cross shows us what everyone who does evil deserves. And for your salvation... God transferred all of your sin 
to his beloved son. And there on the cross, you see exactly how God feels about sin. You see his view of it. And at the end of our text, the end of Malachi chapter 2, the people are asking, where is the God of justice? Look to the cross. That's where the justice of God is on full display. His justice against all of my offenses and all of yours was being meted out on our beloved Savior. Jesus was in the dock for us, and he's pronounced guilty for us so that we, in him, could become the righteousness of God. Let's give him thanks now. Lord, we confess our sins to you once again. We ask you to forgive us for the ways we've maligned you, for the ways we've misrepresented the way you feel about sin. And we thank you for our Savior. And we come to the table now to remember his death. We ask you that as we do so, that you'd fill our hearts with more love for Christ than we've ever had before. As we remember what he endured in our behalf, as he suffered your justice for our sakes. We pray this in his name.